it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Jennifer and Brian Bishop didn't get a lot of time to themselves with three children, especially since their youngest was only five months old. But they managed to carve out a weekend in February of 2008 to go to Chicago. Brian worked in roofing and wanted to attend a roofing convention there. Jennifer had managed to get the weekend off of her job as an ICU nurse and the family took off for a relaxing family getaway. Unfortunately, their happy family outing would turn into tragedy when they encountered someone sinister. The Bishops lived in South Bend, Indiana, and made the 100-mile or 160-kilometer drive up to spend the weekend in the city. That Saturday was February 2, 2008, and Jennifer decided to kick off her morning with some shopping at Brookside Marketplace, a shopping center near where the couple was staying in Tinley Park, a village in the suburbs of Chicago. At some time between 10 a.m. and 10.30 a.m., she walked into the local Lane Bryant store, a clothing store catering to women of all body types. Meanwhile, just minutes away, Connie Woolfolk was preparing for a special day. She was a single mother to two boys aged 16 and 10, and the youngest had spina bifida, so she rarely got time to herself. But that Saturday night, her friends wanted to take her out on a girls' night. She lived in Flossmoor, a suburb next to Tinley Park. She managed to get the entire day free, so she went out in the morning to treat herself to a mani-pedi. Then, she decided she wanted to get a new outfit for the night out. And at some point, just after the store opened at 10 a.m., she too walked into the Lane Bryant store. Carrie Kiuso, another local woman, had also decided to start her day off with some shopping. Her cousin was having a birthday party for her daughter, so she wanted to head to the strip mall to find some presents for her. Her husband, Tony, stayed home to deal with a cable installation they had scheduled for that day. The couple was planning on doing some sightseeing in downtown Chicago before the party, so Carrie also wanted to get a new scarf. She called Tony from the shopping center to let him know she'd found some presents and she would be home after she made a quick stop at the bank, then at Lane Bryant. The two did not get a lot of free time together because Carrie had encouraged Tony to go back to school, and he was busy with studying for his master's, so their outing before the party was going to be a rare treat. 22-year-old Sarah Safransky was out that Saturday shopping as well. She and her boyfriend had plans to see a play that night, so she may have been out looking for a new outfit or otherwise just doing some routine shopping and enjoying her day off. 
Fresh out of college, she'd only just begun her adult career as a paralegal. She walked into Lane Bryant soon after they opened. Inside the store, a part-time employee identified under just the pseudonym Martha was set to open that day. They were going to be a bit short-handed as one of their regular workers had booked the day off for a hair appointment and the other girl meant to be working that day called in that morning because her son was in the hospital. But Martha wasn't completely alone that day. Rhoda McFarland, her manager, came in to help cover things. Rhoda came in quite a bit even when she wasn't scheduled and friends seemed to already know she was coming in that day to help with a sale, so she had likely made the decision to show up even before the other employee had called in. It was just Rhoda and Martha that morning and the two were preparing for a busy day. Rhoda had been a manager at the store for two years and she had started working there after she left her job as a pastor at a local church. Martha had picked up the job along with another day job that she worked to make ends meet for nursing school. Martha's marriage had recently ended, but at 33 she had plenty of time to reinvent herself and find out what she wanted to do with her life, and she felt like she was finally getting things together. Rhoda had also been through a divorce, but had had plenty of time to heal and was actually discussing marriage with her significant other. The two women opened the store at 10 a.m., and just 15 minutes later, someone knocked on the back door about a delivery. It was a stocky African-American man with cornrows wearing nondescript clothing and a knit cap. He had some generic-looking delivery paperwork with him, and Rhoda and Martha let him in the back entrance. What transpired next is known only in the broadest of details, as police are keeping the investigation under wraps. Shortly after coming inside the store... The man pulled out a gun and tied up Martha and Rhoda with duct tape in the back of the store. Connie, Carrie, Sarah, and Jennifer were all already in the store or walked in as that was happening, and he had everyone tied up in the back shortly after 10.15 a.m. He bound the women out of sight in the back of the store with duct tape and covered their heads with clothing. Some of the women struggled before they were tied up. Connie managed to scratch the man and get his DNA under her nails, but ended up beaten up in the process. Her brother later remarked that, quote, She was fighting to stay with her kids. The man seemed to loosely be planning to rob women coming in as they entered the store, as he'd gotten less than $200 from the till and the women who were already inside. He was behaving somewhat erratically, but had the presence of mind to fake a delivery to begin the robbery. Such a high-risk robbery for such a small amount of cash seemed to point to drugs as a possibility, but the man also had some degree of planning. He'd drawn up fake paperwork, and Brookside Marketplace was just off Highway 80, so he had a quick getaway. A drug addict looking for a quick fix could likely get the same amount of cash just by robbing people on the street. At one point, he groped one of the women, but the media didn't say who in the interest of privacy. Beyond that, he did not appear to have a sexual motive. The ordeal went on for half an hour, and he left the women unguarded to go closer to the front of the store. Rhoda was an Air Force veteran and had volunteered as a minister for maximum security prisoners, so she was staying relatively calm and keeping watch for a chance to escape. When the women were left alone, she managed to get free of her bonds, and though she could have run away, instead she stayed with the other women, got a hold of her phone, and immediately called 911. But when the man came back to check on them seconds later and saw her on the phone, he immediately panicked and shot Rhoda in the forehead before instantly turning his gun on the other women. He shot Carrie, Connie, Sarah, and Jennifer in the back of the head, executing them. He shot Martha as well, but she jerked her head as he was firing the gun, and the bullet instead went through the edge of her neck. 
She played dead as the man fled the store. There had been a squad car in a Target parking lot just 200 yards away responding to a break-in when the call came through. The officer was close, but not close enough to hear the shots. Had he been just a bit closer and gotten there just a few seconds sooner, it's possible he could have caught the murderer. Police were within the Lane Bryant in two minutes, but by then, the shooter had fled. One local man, Greg Grace, was outside the shopping center when police arrived. He said, quote, I pulled in and they were all running in the store with stretchers. Then all the stretchers came out empty. Martha was the only survivor, and once police stabilized her, they did rush her to the hospital, but none of the other stretchers ended up being needed. The rest of the women had died instantly. Within minutes of the shots being fired, officers from half a dozen departments responded to the report and sent out nearby cars. At 11 a.m., the South Suburban Major Crimes Task Force started arriving at the scene. They questioned everyone they could find and started slowly letting people leave after they searched their cars. Police pulled over a school bus that came from the area to make sure the shooter didn't force his way on when it stopped nearby. Helicopters started circling, and traffic on all major roads leading out of the area was halted by roadblocks. Nearby stores locked their doors, with customers inside sheltering in place. One woman, Selena Kuyava, described the ordeal to the media soon after, saying that she and her young son were shopping at Target when they heard the news. They were told that shots had been fired and five people were injured or dead. The store was on lockdown for over an hour, with customers and employees alike hiding. When the police showed up, they had guns at the ready and began searching and questioning people. Those hiding in nearby stores had no way of knowing if the shooter might be hiding amongst them. A nearby dance studio was holding a class with middle school-aged girls when the shooting happened. One of the moms got word of the shooting from a phone call and rounded up the dancers who'd been hanging out outside the studio. They quickly locked the doors after the dancers were inside, not wanting to risk letting anyone else in because they had no idea what the shooter looked like. Soon after, the girls saw helicopters fly by outside the studio windows. Some residents with local phone numbers received an emergency alert. The phone calls and alerts started with the residents closest to the shopping center, but it was a time-consuming process. The calls took over four hours to hit all of the numbers that police had in their system for local residents, and even with that effort, many were missed. Residents started calling everyone they knew to warn them of the danger. Tony Kiuso had finished with the cable technician when he got a call from a co-worker telling him a shooting had just happened at the mall. He tried to call Carrie and turned on the news. Any hope that Carrie was already on her way home was dashed when he saw her car still in the parking lot on the news. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The two women who normally would have been at work that day, but who'd either requested the day off or called in, were flooded with calls from friends and family and were able to let them know they were okay. Martha's family was the only other one to receive good news when the hospital phoned her parents to let them know she would live. 
Her family had all moved back to Kentucky, where her extended family was originally from, so she spent her time in the hospital with only police officers to keep her company as she struggled to describe the shooter to them and explain what had happened. There were no video cameras in the store, so police needed her help, but with her physical neck wound and emotional trauma, police were keeping the questioning sessions short. February 2nd came to a close without any resolution. The shooter had not been caught. The day after the shooting, many locals who didn't have to be at work spent the day hiding in their homes in case the shooter was still in the area. As Sunday wore on, Carrie's sister-in-law Jennifer Hudeck gave birth to a baby girl, who she named Carrie. Rhoda's brother Maurice Hamilton was supposed to be celebrating his birthday that day, but instead spent the day mourning. Though the killer was still on the loose, friends, family members, and residents of the community visited the shopping center to pay their respects. They left flowers and said prayers, all while police were still processing the scene. Police were evasive about confirming the number of victims in the first few days. They were still trying to figure out how to best protect Martha's identity. They didn't want the media hounding the survivor, and even more importantly, they didn't want the killer to be able to find Martha or family. The media did manage to get a hold of Martha's family regardless, but did not publish their names or any identifying information. The family chose to share just a bit about themselves and Martha with the media. When Martha's mother got the call that her daughter would live, she said she cried. In church the next day, she prayed out loud in thanks, and the rest of the congregation offered up prayers for the families who had not been so lucky. Martha's family talked a bit about her life. They were all from Kentucky, but had lived in Chicago when Martha was growing up. When they moved back years later, Martha had elected to stay in the city with one of her sisters, and they took over paying the mortgage on the family home. At their new home in Kentucky, her parents had to go into hiding and stay with relatives at the direction of the police in case the killer decided to come looking for them. Martha herself was in protective custody, but when her wound healed up a bit, she offered some condolences for the other families. She said she was praying for them and called the women who had been killed, quote, five of the bravest women I've ever met. Just two days after the shooting, police were circulating the description of the killer. A man with medium-dark skin, cornrows, and green beads in a braid of hair that hung to the right side of his face. He was around 5 foot 9 inches, or 175 centimeters, and of a husky build. Though police were advising he'd almost certainly changed his hair by that point, they were hoping to find more witnesses who spotted him at the shopping center that day. They didn't have much luck. He'd come in through the back entrance of the store, and being a strip mall, he could have parked right outside the store and not be seen by anyone in any other store. Investigators only got one lead they shared with the public as far as a possible witness sighting of the man. One man came forward to say he'd seen someone matching the shooter's description speed away from the scene in a red car, so police were hoping maybe someone else had seen that too. Charming Shoppers LLC, the parent company of Lane Bryant, quickly posted a $50,000 reward for information. They also announced they wanted to pay for the funerals of the victims. The doors at the front and back entrances of the store were removed and sent to the Illinois State Crime Lab for analysis of fingerprints and possible DNA. The entrances were boarded up with plywood, and the flowers people had been bringing were refreshed. The memorial sprawled out with balloons and stuffed animals. At the center, someone placed five white crosses. Brian Bishop went back home to Indiana, now a single father. He broke the news to his children in vague terms, as the older two were only five and seven. 
He was inconsolable those first few days and asked for privacy from the media. Jennifer's co-workers spoke out on her behalf, explaining that she'd been a nurse for over a decade and was beloved by those around her. With only days to process the loss, but with the media scrambling for quotes, the picture painted of some of the victims those first few days came from those who knew them well, but not well enough that they were still too deep in their grief to speak to the press. Co-workers and old high school friends spoke out, reminiscing. People who'd only known them tangentially but remembered them fondly showed just how many people are affected when someone in their community is taken from them. One resident remarked that she recognized Rhoda on the news because, though she'd only been to the store a few times, Rhoda had remembered her and been excited to see her when she came back. Sarah's parents asked for a bit of privacy and time to process things in those first few days, so the media reached out mostly to friends on her behalf. Pete Norio was the father of two of Sarah's friends, so he spoke with the press about her and what a wonderful friend she'd been to his daughters. He said that he feels sure justice will eventually be done, explaining, quote, Eventually, the scumbag maggot who is responsible for this is going to crawl out of the slimy rock he's hiding under, and we're going to get him. Being just 22 at the time, much of what the media learned about her life came from high school classmates and teachers. While in school, Sarah had worked as an altar server, tutored her fellow students, worked on the yearbook, and was a talented musician. She was an introvert, and one classmate remarked that she was always very nice, and he'd never seen her get mad at anyone. She was level-headed. She and her boyfriend, Bruce Phelan, preferred low-key date nights and spending time with family. Sarah was one of the first women to be laid to rest a week after the shooting. By then, some of her family and friends were feeling more ready to speak to the press. At her funeral, her uncle told everyone it was okay to cry if they needed to, and said, quote, The love you take is equal to the love you make. One of her college roommates, Mary Inorio, reminisced a bit about her laugh and how it always got those around her laughing as well. Connie Woolfolk's funeral was held that same day nearby. She'd worked a variety of jobs in the local government before starting her own mortgage company to try to develop the Park Forest area more. She'd made many friends throughout her career, and many of them wanted to tell the world a bit about her. Co-worker Tom Mick said, quote, She was fantastic in everything that she did. She was tremendously upbeat. Connie was excellent with people, and co-workers remarked that when she was dealing with the public, she had a special talent for diffusing situations with upset customers. She was only just starting the next chapter of her life as a business owner when she was killed. As a single mother, her murder left her boys orphans and the rest of her family devastated. Because Connie and Sarah's funerals were held so close together in location and time, many members of the community were able to attend both services, but the semi-joint funeral also became a target for unwanted attention. It was only a week after the shooting, but the Westboro Baptist Church had posted on their website that they'd made plans to attend. Their reasoning was some convoluted explanation that because Lane Bryant catered to larger women, they were specifically supporting trans women. Lane Bryant supports the LGBTQ community, but really only in the way most corporations do, with occasional Pride Month commercials or parade floats. The church was likely just looking to get on the news. Police were prepared for them and brought in any squad cars and emergency response vehicles they could spare to make a physical barrier so mourners wouldn't have to look at the protesters who held up signs saying things like, Thank God for dead shoppers. Connie's son, Victor, and a handful of other loved ones came prepared with signs to protest back, but with messages of peace and acceptance written on them. 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Rhoda's funeral was held that day too, but far enough away that the protesters didn't manage to attend. The pastor at her funeral, Tim Bagwell, said, quote, Her death can overshadow her life. That should not be the case. She should not be remembered as a victim. We should remember her as a victor. Indeed, had the killer been planning on taking more women hostage, she likely saved lives when she managed to make that 911 call. Rhoda's father, Hilton Hamilton, wrote on the program that was passed out at her funeral, quote, We didn't get a chance to say goodbye to you. You were gone before we knew it. If all my love could have saved you, you never would have died. Carrie's funeral was also able to be held without incident, and Jennifer's too, being a state away. Carrie was the first victim to be identified in the media, and because she'd been a local high school counselor, there were countless people ready to tell the press about what she'd been like in life. Carrie worked at Homewood Flossmoor High School to help students with behavioral problems and youth who were involved in gang activity. Carrie was well-loved by her students and respected by her peers. She ran numerous support groups in school to connect students dealing with similar issues, such as parental divorce or grief. When she was killed, the school board scrambled to find grief counselors to come to the school in the interim, as she would have normally been the one to help the students through such a tragic loss. She'd attended the same school growing up, and former classmates remembered her as a bit of a partier, which had carried over into her adult life. She was fun-loving and a huge extrovert, but was also the one who'd help drunk friends get home safe, or bring baked goods to a friend going through something tough. When her husband Tony was ready to speak to the media, he told them all about their relationship. He said she had a lovely smile, and it had been what drew him in when they first met. He said after their first date, quote, I couldn't stop thinking about her. I just knew she was the one. He proposed after just seven months. They'd only been married for two years before she was taken from him, and he said that she'd made him want to be a better person. Police officers posted pictures of the victims around their office to motivate themselves. They tried to speak with the media about the small amount of information they could disclose as they had to be secretive about the investigation those first few days so that if any of their tips were legitimate, the media wouldn't announce anything that might in turn tip off the killer. Ballistics experts determined the gun used was a 40 caliber handgun. Police scoured the area near the strip mall for clues. They searched through the snow outside the mall in case the killer had disposed of the murder weapon and they dredged a nearby retention pond, hoping to find anything but came up empty-handed. A candlelight vigil held soon after saw the community pull together to pray for the victims and their families. In that first week, local papers pointed out the idyllic nature of Tinley Park and how shocking it was that such a tragedy would strike the community. Though Tinley Park is technically a suburb of Chicago, it's a historic village that retained much of its antique charm throughout the years. Small businesses thrive and people know their neighbors. There had only been two homicides in Tinley Park in the last decade up until the shooting. Mayor Ed Zabrocki said, quote, 
I think the people are beginning to realize and have realized after it happened that this could happen anywhere. It's just the society we live in. A month after the shooting, police had followed up on over 1,400 tips and had a backlog of information they were looking through. They told the media they were still very optimistic the leads they were going through might see the killer apprehended. Weeks turned into months, but in the spring, police thought there was a chance they had a breakthrough. On April 23rd, five people were killed in a home on the south side of the city. One of the men caught in connection with that shooting bore a passing resemblance to the Lane Bryant shooter. The house was targeted because the robbers suspected that there was jewelry and cash on the premises, so robbery was also the motive there. The suspect, Michael King, had purchased a 40 caliber revolver two days after the Lane Bryant shooting. He had previously used a 40 caliber gun in a robbery in Arizona, indicating it was his weapon of choice and he had no problem disposing of guns and purchasing replacements. However, that lead didn't pan out and King was ruled out as a suspect. At the end of the summer, police had another promising lead. They were surprisingly open about what they were pursuing given the secrecy they had operated under. They went back and forth with the media on if they thought the attack was random or somehow personal, and in August they were pursuing the idea that the attack had been someone targeting Rhoda McFarland. Apparently, Rhoda had had an ugly falling out with her former church. She'd been at Crest Hill Church since the 90s where she was an ordained minister. At the church, Rhoda worked with preteen girls to teach them how to deal with peer pressure and other teenage problems as they grew up. That was also the church where she ran a program volunteering with prisoners. Sandra McGee, one of her close friends, said, quote, She always wanted to be a woman of excellence in what she did. She was on the church board of directors and even co-signed on numerous mortgage and legal documents. Pastor George Asia left the church in 2005 to start a new branch in Austin, Texas, and entrusted Rhoda to keep the Chicago chapter going. He left Rhoda in charge, but when she started to deal with the church's funds, she became suspicious that the church's money was being misused. Rhoda and several other members of the church ended up leaving over the issue. Rhoda formally left the church in 2006. There's little coverage of the scandal, but whatever had been happening with the money, Crest Hill Church was sold for $1.25 million in 2007. Police were suspicious that someone in the church may have had a hand in the crime because on the day of the shooting, a member of the church's cell phone pinged at a nearby tower just an hour before the killings. The phone call was approximately 20 minutes long and the police were so sure of the lead that they announced it to the media and sent a team to Texas. Pastor Asia told the media that he was incredibly upset that police thought anyone in their church could have hurt Rhoda. He said she was someone they cared deeply about for years and that the falling out they had had would have in no way led to murder. Apparently, that lead also went cold, but the police really went out of their way to tell the media they were not ruling out a church connection, which was a bit jarring when they'd been so secretive about most of their other leads. By November, the Lane Bryant store was still a crime scene and had yet to reopen. By the one-year anniversary, the store was gone. The media ran numerous articles chronicling the investigation so far and checking in with family to see how they were coping. At the one-year point, police still had a dozen officers investigating and they followed up on over 6,000 leads. By that February, Carrie Kiuso's family had started an annual fundraiser in her honor where they tried to raise money for local college scholarships. In the fundraiser's first year, they netted over $100,000. 
Sarah Safransky's mother, Mary, told the media, quote, I've been told time helps, but it hasn't. It feels like yesterday. She said they'd been leaning on their faith to get through the ordeal. Connie Woolfolk's sister said that her family was still in mourning and that Connie, quote, was always special. She had a way of showing love, pure love. Rhoda McFarland's brother told the press that a year after the shooting, he started feeling like he could celebrate his birthday again. It's what she would have wanted. Brian Bishop spoke with the press about being a single father. He said it has left him without a lot of time for grief, which is good and bad as he's always busy with his family. He especially misses having Jennifer's help on the children's school projects as she always cared about helping them make their posters or dioramas perfect. He struggles with that. He said he tries not to actively follow the story in the news as there's so many leads and he doesn't want to be constantly getting his hopes up only to be let down. In the decade and a half since, that's all that's been in the media. Leads that have gone nowhere. The Lane Bryant shooting remains unsolved. Internet sleuths and true crime aficionados have speculated over the years with various theories. But with so little to go on, the theories are little more than speculation. Some think Tinley Park police were being so secretive because they botched the investigation. Some say that Martha was involved and that's why she survived. Perhaps in part because of these theories, Martha has stayed out of the public eye as papers were pointing to her as a potential suspect from the first week the story broke, even while she was still in the hospital recovering. Though the crime remains unsolved, police are still hoping that one day they might catch the monster responsible. Connie managed to get his DNA under her fingernails as she fought for her life. Had Rhoda not called the police, there would likely have been other families in mourning that day, and in doing so, she managed to get the killer's voice recorded for police to circulate. Martha described what she saw of the murderer's appearance before he covered her head, and with fingerprints left on the other victims. The police have more than enough evidence to match to the killer should he ever be caught. DNA matching databases, specifically the Illinois State Felon Database, are constantly getting caught up and only becoming more detailed as the years pass. Though the case is cold for now, with the evidence the victims managed to gather in their final moments, it's possible that one day the killer might finally be brought to justice. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. 
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.